0: They say idle hands make the devils work. In an effort to combat being idle, I have an idea for a game you could play. Go to the website for the otherwise useless U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and look around for heterodox or worse ideas that they're promoting. You'll find no shortage of bad ideas promoted by the U.S. bishops. Lately, they decided to publish a document on the scourge of racism in the U.S., using, using as a frame of analysis the language used by secular academics and the media. And they did this right when massive bad news about the sexual abuse crisis broke in the news last winter. That's not the only example, obviously. The USCCB website is filled with talking points supporting the American political party of Moloch worship on all things but Moloch worship itself. That's to be expected but a subscriber showed something to me on Twitter on the 21st of May. It's a great find as it shows the horrors of modernism and its consequences on the faith. And like I keep saying, the warnings of Our Lady of La Salette keep coming to mind as of late. This story is an example of that. Let's dive into this. Before we can do that, I need to define what you'll see the bishops doing here. They're engaging in something called critical analysis, which I think is a diabolical method of examining pretty much well anything. Critical analysis is a method of study that can be applied to pretty much every field of study imaginable. While its proponents would never describe it this way, critical analysis attacks the traditional understanding of a subject of study, with the expressed aim of shedding truth on it. But in reality, it destroys it as a sacred cow of an oppressive Western patriarchal society. For once, Wikipedia actually provides one of the better definitions of biblical critical analysis. Remember, this comes from the establishment, though. Quote, Biblical criticism is an umbrella term for those methods of studying the Bible that embrace two distinctive perspectives, the concern to avoid dogma and bias by applying a non-sectarian reason-based judgment, and the reconstruction of history according to contemporary understanding. Biblical criticism uses the grammar, structure, development, and relationship of language to identify such characteristics as the Bible's literary structure, its genre, its context, meaning, authorship, and origins. Biblical criticism includes a wide range of approaches and questions within four major contemporary methodologies. Textual, source, form, and literary criticism. Textual criticism examines the text and its manuscript to identify what the original text would have said. Source criticism searches the text for evidence of original sources. Form criticism identifies short units of text and seeks to identify their original setting. Each of these is primarily historical and pre-compositional in its concerns. Literary criticism, on the other hand, focuses on the literary structure, authorial purpose, and readers' response to the text through methods such as rhetorical criticism, canonical criticism, and narrative criticism." If I'd kept reading the entry, you'd have seen that the editors of that page openly admit that it's part of the modernist tradition to engage in biblical critical analysis. Remember, folks, that for many people in the broader supposed Christian world today, modernism is a good thing, not a bad thing. If you oppose modernism, then you're just against anything new, not realizing that the whole point of the modernist project is to destroy the faith and to replace it with a utopian vision that is useful for a broader political project. Modernism kills faith, and blinds its adherents to the real situation in the church today. I have personal friends of mine who don't think there is anything wrong at all in the church, that the reports that McCarrick and others did the things that they did are the relics of a bygone era before this pope and JP two before him fixed everything, and that there might be a little cleanup needed, but for the most part everything is fine, so let's just get to opening our borders and fighting climate change already. I'm deadly serious about that. I'm not even exaggerating. So let's see what the subscriber sent to me on Twitter. It features screen caps of text from the USCCB's website describing the Gospels. I'll read the text verbatim for you. Okay, so what we have here are the introductory paragraphs of three of the four Gospels on the USCCB website. The introduction to the Gospel of Luke isn't that bad. It's got a couple problems but not really worth highlighting here. This may sound a little technical but I'm sure you can follow along. Anyway, let's get started with this the introduction to the Gospel of Matthew. The ancient tradition that the author was the disciple and apostle of Jesus named Matthew, see Matthew 10, chapter three, is untenable because the gospel is based in large part on the gospel according to Mark. Almost all the verses of that gospel have been utilized in this. And it is hardly likely that a companion of Jesus would have followed so extensively an account that came from one who admittedly never had such an association rather than rely on his own memories. The attribution of the gospel to the disciple Matthew may have been due to his having been responsible for some of the traditions found in it, but that is far from certain. The unknown author, whom we shall continue to call Matthew for the sake of convenience, drew not only upon the gospel according to Mark, but upon a large body of material, principally sayings of Jesus, not found in Mark that corresponds, sometimes exactly, to material also found in the gospel according to Luke. This material, called Q, probably from the first letter of the German word quell, meaning source, represents traditions, written and oral, used by both Matthew and Luke. Mark and Q are sources common to the two other synoptic gospels. Hence the name, the two-source theory, gives to this explanation of the relation among the synoptics. In addition to what Matthew drew from Mark and Q, his gospel contains material that is found only there. This is an often designated M, written or oral tradition that was available to the author. Since Mark was written shortly before or after AD 70, see Introduction to Mark, Matthew was composed certainly after that date, which marks the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans at the time of the first Jewish revolt AD 66-70, and probably at least a decade later since Matthew's use of Mark presupposes a wide diffusion of that gospel. The post AD 70 date is confirmed within the text by Matthew 22:7. 7 which refers to the destruction of Israel. So, do you see what they're doing here? They're undermining the inerrancy of sacred scripture, of the gospel. I I don't understand how they get away with this, but they do. So, the gospel according to Mark. It's shorter. Although the book is anonymous apart from the ancient heading according to Mark in manuscripts, it has traditionally been assigned to John Mark, in whose mother's house at Jerusalem Christians assembled, Acts 12.12, this Mark was a cousin of Barnabas and accompanied Barnabas and Paul on missionary journeys. See a bunch of references to Acts. He appears in Pauline letters, see a couple more references, and with Peter, see 1 Peter 5.13. Papias, around 135 AD, described Mark as Peter's interpreter, a view found in other patristic writers patron influence should not, however, be exaggerated. The evangelist has put together various oral and possibly written sources, miracle stories, parables, sayings, stories of controversies, and the Passion, so as to speak of the crucified Messiah for Mark's own day. Traditionally, the gospel is said to have been written shortly before AD 70 in Rome, a time of impending persecution and with destruction loomed over Jerusalem. Its audience seems to have been Gentile, unfamiliar with Jewish customs. The book aimed to equip such Christians to stand faithful in the face of persecution while going on with the proclamation of the gospel begun in Galilee. Modern research often proposes as the author an unknown Hellenistic Jewish Christian, possibly in Syria and perhaps shortly after the year 70. Again, they're doing it here too. They're undermining the sacred tradition and sacred scripture and its inerrancy by casting into doubt its origins. And this is on the US Conference of Catholic Bishops website introduction to john critical analysis makes it difficult to accept the idea that the gospel as it now stands was written by one person john 21 seems to have been added after the gospel was completed it exhibits a greek style somewhat different from that of the rest of the work the prologue apparently contains an independent hymn, subsequently adapted to serve as a preface to the gospel. Within the gospel itself, there are also some inconsistencies, as of e.g., there are two endings of Jesus' discourse in the upper room. To solve these problems, scholars have proposed various rearrangements that would produce a smoother order. <sighs> wow. However, most have come to the conclusion that the inconsistencies were probably produced by subsequent editing in which homogeneous materials were added to a shorter original. Other difficulties for any theory of eyewitness authorship of the Gospel in its present form are presented by its highly developed theology and by certain elements of its literary style. For instance, some of the wondrous deeds of Jesus have been worked into highly effective dramatic scenes. There has been a careful attempt to have these followed by discourses that explain them, and the sayings of Jesus have been woven into long discourses of a quasi-poetic form resembling the speeches of personified wisdom in the Old Testament. And even again here, they undermine the authorship of the Gospel according to John. And that's especially dangerous because of all the Gospels, the Gospel of John is the one filled with the most miracles. It's not the only one filled with miracles, obviously, but this is the one that a lot of critics take aim at because of its obvious divine um, sort of content about, uh, about our Lord. Look, folks, either the Bible is the inerrant word of God or it's not. And if it's not, then really what's the point? We either believe it all, or we shouldn't really bother with any of it. Some people say that it's an extreme take to have, but it's true if you really follow the logic of critical scriptural analysis to its logical endgame. It's a modernist means of analyzing scripture, with a point of undermining the faith. I've long said that the modernists have wanted to turn the faith into some really lame political program. They haven't succeeded, but they have been successful into leading many people into serious error by turning the faith into a set of principles to enact political change with the goal of creating heaven on earth. If the Bible is full of error like these freaks say it is, then what are we supposed to believe? But this all points to a bigger problem. Spending a lot of time on social media enables me to see some really bizarre things related to the faith, things that often get overlooked by the bulk of the Catholic world, and especially overlooked by the Catholic media. Maybe what I found next isn't that big of a deal, but I think it does point to a bigger problem in the church. Call it the La Salette problem again, if you like, I came across a posting on an obscure blog purportedly written by a Muslim woman who is, of all things, or was, studying theology in Rome in some modernist ecumenical program. She had been sent a questionnaire from a non-profit that is supposedly Catholic that asked for her feedback on the program. She decided to put the questions on her blog. The English was a little weird at first, so I fixed it, but I don't blame her for that since it was not her original language. I'll only highlight the first three responses she gave because they are the only ones of interest to those of us facing the scourge of modernism in the church today, though the rest are pretty funny, too. She begins her presentation with this. A friend who works in an international organization of Catholic priests just reviewed me, interviewed me for a publication. The questions are related with the priesthood formation in Rome and what to do to fix the interreligious aspect of their education. I think I'm going to share some of my responses here. For those of you who question my background, I was interviewed because I was educated in the Vatican for a year. I actually went to class with these priests in some for, in formation. Now, a quick note. She never posts the questions she was asked. We can infer what they were from her responses. Response one, add more Muslim faculties and pontifical universities, as well as professors from other religions to talk about their own traditions. Don't study other religions from your own Catholic perspective because this usually reduces other religions into secondary truth bearers. I'm gonna interject. Calling other religions even secondary truth bearers is modernism, but let's continue. Response two, let the sisters in classes speak. Encourage them to speak and the patriarchal hegemony in pontifical classrooms. Listening to the voices of women is crucial for a genuine interreligious dialogue. Response 3. Fix your intention before you commit yourself to any interreligious encounters. Genuine interreligious dialogue is not a way to prove Catholicism is the quote-unquote real truth. Be ready to learn from other religious traditions. (laughs) I mean, there is a lot to unpack there but instead of smacking around these painfully bad statements, let's instead reflect on the state of the church. I can't think of a time before the era of the modernist heresy where a Saracen would be studying in a pontifical academy in Rome, and I can't think of a time before our present time when one could employ feminist language in their attack against the church and expect it to be effective. She's demanding to let the women be heard in the classroom, to smash the patriarchy, which, coming from a Saracen, is especially funny and to have religions that preach a false gospel be held with the same respect in the Vatican as the Catholic faith. Try that in Riyadh, and let us know how it works. Only in our age of rampant sin and heresy could we expect to see this kind of error promoted so brazenly by the enemies of the church that are inside the church. Only in our age of broken faith could we expect to see non-Catholics being educated in pontifical academies in the name of ecumenical dialogue. But this problem, like that of the USCCB, is one and the same these men do not possess the truth they cannot possibly believe in the truth of the holy catholic religion if they did they wouldn't present as official analysis on the usccb website material that attempts to undermine the gospel and definitely destroys the faith of unsuspecting believers who don't know that many of their shepherds are wolves the same holds true for the situation in rome for there's no reason for saracens to be educated in pontifical academies Call me a bigot if you like, but we see the equivalent in a Shia or Sunni equivalent academy someday. I really, sincerely doubt it, because the men running those false religions believe what they preach. They believe and are willing to defend their faith from outsiders. Why don't our shepherds believe like that? Anyway, thank you for listening and for your support. Pray and do acts of penance for the liberation and exaltation of the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.